Oh, todos nuestros recuerdos en una tortilla. I said, it's like all, all of our remembrances, you know, like in a tortilla. And, you know, my parents, they work with us. See, I'm already getting teared up. It really is about family. From Six City Marketing, this is the Prof PodQuest. A journey into higher education innovation, searching for and celebrating game-changing educators. I'm Sarah Shookman. On today's show, we talk tacos in two languages. That's because Netflix featured Purdue professor Dr. Brenda Sarmiento Quesada is sharing her passion for her native Mexico City through food and bilingual education. Her focus is on creating a new generation of educators who celebrate bilingualism, impacting the lives of their students and communities. My name is Brenda Sarmiento Quesada. I'm an assistant professor in literacy and language in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Purdue University. Brenda, thank you so much for joining the Prof PodQuest today. It's so great to talk with you. It's great uh, being here with you, Sarah. Let's start maybe at the beginning. Where are your days spent right now? So I uh, teach literacy and language. I focus on uh, emergent bilinguals, or here in, in Indiana, they're still called English language learners or multilingual learners. Uh, so I spend my day talking about bilingualism, language acquisition, and how to work with students who, uh, whose first language might not be English. Why do we need this focus? First of all, uh, we need to recognize that the school system and the school demographics are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not the same that they were 30, 40 years ago. We're getting more and more students who are bilingual, who are emergent bilingual. And when we think about bilingual students, we think about many times uh, immigrant students. But actually, the majority of emergent bilinguals in our schools today, they were born here in the United States. Uh, they're a product of living in a household where two or more languages are being spoken. So there is really no hiding from it. It's there. Uh, we're turning into a you know, multilingual society. Uh, however, our schooling system is still operating under this monolingual lens. Historically, we've always looked at uh, emergent bilinguals or Back in the day, they used to be calling uh, limited English proficiency students, uh, you know, with this deficit lens. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is really start to change the narrative and, and really become a little bit more with this growth man mindset um, where uh, we start valuing and we start, again, recognizing that the identity of these students, you know, play a huge role in who they are within our school. The multilingual society, as you said, we're becoming, and also this idea of the interconnectedness of the world because of internet and all of those things. I see it as, as a gift and a skill. And I wish I was multilingual or raised in a household that had that dynamic. It sounds really cool. And it's amazing when you really start delving into, you know, how a bilingual uh, brain operates. And a bit again, Unfortunately, uh, I mean, you and I, we see it as an asset. Our school system still does not. Mm. And that's where it gets a little bit dicey. Yeah. And again, historically, you know, um, 
uh, language learning here in the United States has been kind of like pushed to the side. You know, there is a huge push about, um, you know, learning English and not really understanding that uh, we as bilinguals, you know, we need different supports. We operate a little bit different. Uh, we continue to be labeled. We continue to be seen sometimes, you know, as, as deficit because, you know, uh, we have we have an accent or, you know, like we might, it might take us a little bit to understand something, you know. So one of the cool things I think it's happening around the country for, you know, like, and I guess last couple of decades is there has been this expansion of dual language programs and dual language programs essentially there there's a couple uh, different variations um, but one of the ones that's becoming more popular is called the two-way dual language program where you you imagine you know you have a classroom and that classroom is divided in two and then half of your class are English monolingual speakers and then the other half is, and I'm oversimplifying, and then the other half is, you know, in, in this case, you know, Spanish speakers or Mandarin speakers or, you know, there's French. Um, so the idea is for students to learn both languages simultaneously and for students to help each other with the strength, with their linguistic strength. So you might teach, for example, um, if it's in an English and Spanish program, just for simplicity, um, you know, as a teacher, you teach the content in Spanish. So your English monolingual students are also learning Spanish. But in this case, you're actually validating the language. Mm. Uh, in this case, a target language, which is Spanish. And the idea is that by the end of the schooling, both sets of students become bilingual, bicultural, and biliterate, meaning that they'll be able to read and write in both language. languages. They'll be able to uh, to speak both languages and do academic content in both languages. And it's been a, a labor, really a labor of love, um, you know, by activists, you know, language activists, bilingual activists, immigrants, you know, since the 60s and since the 70s, you know, that have really pushed to to really to hold on to to their linguistic rights. Are these dual language programs, like I think of other countries as being ahead of us in a lot of these trends. The United States has sort of long uh, leaned the other direction. And yet, you know, you look to places like Europe or even South America, Mexico, places like that, where dual language education, including English, uh, is commonplace. Yes. And it's interesting because we, we keep saying like, oh, but everybody else is doing it. And then we continue to not do it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, and, I, and a lot of it really has to do with with teaching our communities the importance of it you know i think valuing it ourselves and that's one of the things that i really make sure that i instill in my students for them especially here uh, where i'm currently teaching in the context that i'm teaching so i was teaching in texas completely different context most of my uh pre-service teachers actually all of the pre-service teachers that i work with were bilingual teacher candidates they all had that context of what it meant to learn another language. So like I mentioned earlier, they wanted to be that one teacher that they didn't have, you know, that they, that's what they were working sure. with. In this case, it's different, you know, um, here in, in Indiana, you know, a lot of my pre-service teachers are not bilingual. Uh, they've taken maybe a class in high school or right now in college, you know, a language class. 
but not enough for them to really understand, you know, like, what is it to be growing bilingual? The, the role that they have as teachers, as advocates, really, you know, they have such a powerful place in the classroom to really allow kids to be who they are and to, to show that identity and to validate that identity. I really took that upon myself to be like, okay, I need a model of like what it looks like to be bilingual, what it can look like. And, and for them to see that there's nothing to be ashamed of, you know, that it's actually an asset and that there's something that, you know, that they already come with and, yeah. and they just need to polish it and, and, and use it to their advantage, you know, and give them that cultural pride that we might not be able to see sometimes in the media, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we, we get a month of the year, you know, we get Hispanic Heritage Month in which everybody's talking about, you know, all this amazing thing that the Latinx community contributes, and then we forget about it. There is a lot of, of, um, of historical precedents. There is a, a lot of um, contributions that, you know, our communities have made and how can we validate and bring them into the classroom as well and bring it right now with my pre-service teachers and show them and, you know, for them to also feel like they have this security in talking about it because it's also uncomfortable. If you don't have that background, it's uncomfortable to talk about things that you don't know. Yeah. So how do you give them those tools? It's a, again, it's a process. Yeah. And a cycle. And, and I love that you're making change at the, at the very early stages through these teachers, you know, before they even get into the classroom. And I can see that a K through 12 education that, you know, a few decades from now looks more inclusive and, and more open and welcoming and affirming changes the conversations that these folks are having as teenagers or as college students and moving into their own careers. I want to back up and talk about your background and how you know, how you grew up and how this became such an area of passion for you. As you said, you, you live this, you, you are setting an example as a bilingual woman. So I was born and raised in Mexico city and I came here, well, to the United States. I moved to Texas when I was a teenager, I was like halfway through high school. Uh, So I'm what's called a 1.5 generation, meaning that we were born somewhere else, but they kind of we kind of grew and developed in another country. So you're kind of like mm-hmm. half and half, one foot in each place. Yeah, you know there is this uh, this this notion uh, called you know to be in the third space, or for um, people in, in in our community, it's called nepantla, in which you're like we say that que no somos ni de aquí ni de allá. You know, like. You, you tend to lose a little bit that part of your identity because like if I go back to Mexico, I feel like I don't fit in. But then here in the United States, you know, I'm, I'm still not quite there. So I'm like in between. And just like me, there is like thousands, you know, of, 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 of people, um, um, immigrants, professionals that live here in the United States that we are like stuck in this in-betweenness. Um, of two cultures. So, uh, you know, I moved to Texas uh, with my family, or at that case, I was a teen. So I moved with them. Uh, It wasn't a choice. Uh, And I'm going to be honest, I hated it. I hated it. It was this whole culture, you know, like in high school, it's your most, you know, again, your most difficult time. Hard time. Yeah. You know, to be leaving everything that you had known for for something so different and challenging. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the whole concept of an American high school of like having lockers and changing like that blew my mind. Um, so I struggled a lot when I graduated high school. I decided, you know, I I wanted to go to college uh, here in the United States, and I went to Texas A and M in College Station. So I lived in San Antonio. So it's about like maybe like three hours, but you know, for our family that was far. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I was I was the first one who moved out to college. You know, um, and figuring it out on your own. Yes. So that was tough. That was tough. Definitely a a, a culture clash. I I felt. Um, it was a little bit hard to obviously use my bilingualism. Um, you know, there really wasn't any um, any courses that I could take in Spanish. Uh, plus, at the same time, um, I was taking French because I was like, what's the point of taking Spanish? Uh, let me take another language. So I have a minor in French. Uh, but, you know, in Texas, like, where do we get to practice it? You know, <laughs> um, so you know, years went back, I, I got my master's um, in public policy and analysis. And I remember when I was, when I was doing my master's, and I remember hearing my classmates. So remember, I came in high school, I had no concept about, you know, really K to 12 here in the US other mm-hmm. than, you know, a few years, yeah, what I, my, my little experience. But I remember hearing my classmates who were uh, focusing on education here in the United States about the problems in the U.S. system. And I would be like, what are you talking about? We're in the United States. You know, it's like, you know, like you want problems? You know, I'll show you some problems, <laughs> you know. And so I really didn't comprehend what was happening. And fast forward some years later, and I got my alternative uh, certification to teach. And that was first time stepping into a K-12 classroom. I, I was in San Antonio. I started as a bilingual teacher in a dual language program. I, it was, I was very apprehensive because, you know, I wanted, I wanted to teach high school. I wanted to teach older kids. Um, but I'm also five foot, you know, tall. So I felt like high schoolers were going to just overshadow me. Um, so I remember that I was like, maybe if I stick to elementary, you know, like where I can still see them in the eye. <laughs> and so I started teaching elementary and I loved it. And it was in a, it was in a dual language program. And I got to see for the first time how powerful it was for students to be able to utilize uh these linguistic assets and for them to really for the first time too, like hold command of the classroom and be like hey we're doing things in my language and I'm gonna teach you and I'm gonna help you you know and helping their other students and it was so beautiful to see and I fell in love with it I fell in love with it I was like why are we not doing this everywhere you know at that time my school uh, was an inner city school it was the only school in the district that had a dual language program. And I was like, what, what, why are we not doing this everywhere else? You know, to pause for a second, what, it, what did you see in the students? Like I can imagine there was just like a, a level of confidence that came from, it's from reframing this 
thing that they had felt was a burden or a deficit, as you said before, that now is an asset. Now this is something I can offer my classmates and, and in collaboration with others. It's a skill I have, I can share. Yes, and, and that, that was the whole point. You know, like I really made the point of making sure, as I mentioned earlier, like I had students that were like, I don't want to speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. So I had to reframe the whole concept of my classroom and be like, how can we elevate you know, the minoritized language in the class, you know, how can we elevate it to the point that they're proud of it, of they're proud of being bilingual. Yeah. And that went for both sets of students, for my English monolingual students and for Spanish students, you know, like for them to understand that they were both developing bilingually and they were both had something, you know, that probably other kids didn't have, you know, when they were learning and they were able to, to read more books and they were able to, you know, to to watch different videos, you know, or like, um, and or uh, they were able to conversations with other family members that perhaps they would have not been able to, especially with grandparents. Again, it was beautiful to see, you know, there's a lot of 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 pieces on how we get to be at this point, but. I'm happy we're starting to slowly arrive. So then it kind of became a question. It's like, okay, well, what's going to happen with all the other kids, you know, that that might not be in this school or they might not be able to access this type of services. And that's when um, the mom of, of one of my students, she's an amazing poet. Uh, she was a poet laureate for uh, San Antonio. And she approached me one day and she was like, Ms. Sarmiento, she was like, have you ever thought about doing your PhD? And I was like, maybe. <laughs> I was like, and so he was like, we need, you know, like we need teachers like you, um, you know, to really advocate for our students. Wow. And that's how I went. You know, I, I, I started my program. I started working with pre-service teachers. So instead of now teaching kids, it's like, okay, how do I teach bigger kids to teach kids, you know, to take little ones? And how, how can we magnify your influence, right? Yes. Yes. So that is one part, but then there's the other part. So before all of this went about, um, so again, I lived in San Antonio, decided to stay there. And at some point after my master's, after my master's, before I started teaching, nobody wanted to hire me and nobody wanted to hire my brother. And we were like, okay, you know, like, and it was this whole, you know, like we were desperate. So we, we decided to open up a sushi place Okay. And in San Antonio. And it was, it's a, uh, the concept is in Japan, Mex. So again, I grew up in Mexico city. I was going to say, why sushi? Ah, this is the great part of it. Uh, so this is, I love talking about this. Um, so did you know that sushi is one of the most popular foods after tacos, you know, and people tend to not know those things. I did not know that, you know, like we, we tend to see, you know, like Mexico in one lens. So, uh, we open a sushi place, what I call sushi a la Mexicana. It's like Mexican style sushi, um, which is like pretty, you know, like popular in, well, in Mexico, in Mexico city where I grew up. Uh, we had been living in San Antonio for a while and we really missed, you know, eating the sushi that we grew up eating. Um, so we, uh, we opened up a place and then right, the, right before the pandemic, uh, 
we decided to open a taqueria. So all of this is happening while I'm in my program over here. It's like I'm living a double life. Yeah, I'm sure you felt pulled in many directions during that chapter. Oh my God, yes, yes. I'm trying to tie it all, you know? So I'm <laughs> trying to keep it all into one bundle. Um, so we opened the taqueria right before, uh, four days before the pandemic hit. Oh my goodness. Four days before we had to um, close the dining rooms. And so the taqueria, we specialize in tacos al pastor. So tacos al pastor are uh, is uh, pork cooked in a vertical spit, and they come from the Lebanese uh, migrants that came into Mexico City. Well, actually, into Puebla. Sorry, into Puebla. Back then, it was eaten with lamb, but because you know, like pork is more popular in Mexico, so it kind of switched from lamb into pork. And now it is one of the most popular tacos in in the country, really. Like tacos al pastor, you know, I like to call them. They're like the king of tacos. You know, like my brother and I, we talked about like, what about opening a place, you know, again, that reminds us of our childhood, you know? So a lot of the things that we do, we do from kind of like this place of, of, of nostalgia and remembrance. And also with the fact that we want to share that with our community, you know, with with there is you know obviously texas you know you have tex-mex uh but there there is this notion about what mexican food is and we really take it upon ourselves to to teach through food you know like to teach about mexican culture um you know that we're not just that we come in very different you know like shapes and sizes and forms and flavors and there's so many cultures you know historically mexico is a country of immigrants, something that sometimes, you know, we tend to not think of it because when we think of Mexico, we think of like, oh, the immigrants that are coming. Mm -hmm. But historically, you know, Mexico has always been very open to immigration. Uh, They've received, you know, uh, people from all over, you know, so there is this, this, and it's being transposed now into the food. So a lot of the food that we have comes from those immigrant communities, and now it becomes Mexican food. I love that you're sort of exporting that for us because we think of Mexico City as this very international big city and place where you can find a bit of everything. But I can see in San Antonio, it didn't have that breadth to the definition of of what is Mexican. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've always said that food is really deeply rooted, you know, in, in, in our immigrant identity, you know, like we can't take that away from from us, you know, it's always going to be there. So might as well use it again as a, as an opportunity to to bring in the community to to showcase a little bit of of different different flavors uh, different things and it's been great you know it's been the community you know there was a little bit of pushback and sometimes we get a little bit of that pushback uh, but I think as immigrants we're relentless <laughs> you know like you you have to make it work you know that's that's the way. Uh, that's the way that 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 we operate. We keep at it. We we try to educating. I guess I keep saying that, but I think that's just a teacher in me. We all need to eat, right? And so the idea of getting to someone's heart through their stomach that sort of comes back to me. That like you open the door to these bigger conversations through the plate. Oh my god! And you have no idea. Like we've had so many many amazing conversations. You know, like at the restaurant. You know, from 
especially from first timers or like, oh, we just, you know, stop by. Because then that's an opportunity to be like, oh my God, let me tell you all about it, you know? And yeah. and we've really over the years, you know, like, you know, a lot of our customers have, have turned into family, you know, and, and we're like part of each other's lives. And it's just, you know, it's it's a different way of reaching across the aisle to other people. It's through food, you know, because like you said, we all got to eat. When I watched the Netflix thing and I saw you speak about your father uh, being in the kitchen and you said like, you know, this is my childhood on a tortilla. I mean, that that just resonates. Yes. All, all, todos nuestros recuerdos en una tortilla. I said, it's like all, all of our remembrances, you know, like in a tortilla. And, and, and that's what it is. You know, that place, you know, my parents, they work with us. See, I'm already getting teared up. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, this was an endeavor that my brother and I started, but it really is about family. Going back into the reasoning why my parents felt the need to leave their country mm-hmm. and bring us with them. You know, that's a, that's a tough decision. You know, it's, it's a leave everything behind and start anew, you know, and I think this is just like a testament of really that that love that they have for us you know of of wanting us to be able to achieve something that maybe they would have not been able to so in 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 the episode you know i i i talk about my dad because i think i never really it was until that day and i i mentioned it you know when when my dad was so proud of of us, of saying like, hey, did you ever imagine, you know, being able to serve your culture? And I hadn't seen it like that, you know, because again, for me, it's not that it's taken for granted, but it is who I am, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and for him to recognize that and see that and mention it, you know, it was, it was a moment that I think it kind of encompassed everything that we've worked for as a family, you know, and, and it's, it's, it hasn't been easy. It's been tough, but we're still here. We're still here. We're still there. My parents are still there. Um, I always, you know, tell people when they go, I was like, well, you know, it's like my mom might be the one taking your order or my dad might be the one get, taking your delivery, you know, and it's again, <laughs> it's, it's a just, labor of love. It's a labor of love. That's exactly right. Yeah. How did Netflix find you? So that was serendipity. Uh, so... <laughs> I was going on my program in the mornings, you know, and then so I was teaching in the mornings and then in the evenings, pretty much every day, you know, I was working. I was working the register and uh, this lady, Haley, she um, she came in and, and, and she she ordered tacos. She told us that um, one of her colleagues from the university recommended her. So but she spoke to me in Spanish. And so Haley, beautiful, blonde, tall, and she was talking to me in Spanish. So I was puzzled because again, language is at the forefront of pretty much everything I do. So I, after giving her her tacos and then she came back to me and she's like, oh my God, you know, like, it's amazing. They really do taste like Mexico City. And I asked her, I was like, can I ask you a question? It's like, where did you learn Spanish? You know, and she's like, oh, I used to live in Mexico City. So she was kind of like, we started talking and we left it at it. She left. I left. And then so Haley, later on, I found out 
she was one of the producers for the Taco Chronicles for the other, you know, the first two seasons. And maybe about a month later, she messaged us on the restaurant uh, Instagram and she asked like, hey, do you guys have a couple of minutes to chat? And I was like, okay. So we talked and they just told me kind of like, like you said, like, okay, tell me your story. Now, mind you, this one took so long. I don't know how they were able to listen to me for so long. Conversation finished. Then they told us, you know, like maybe about a month later, like, hey, we're, we're doing, we have a project, a tackle project. Um, but they didn't say anything. We didn't know. We actually didn't know until the day of filming. What? And yeah. I, yeah. So. That's crazy. It was until that day. Um Again, it was it was very serendipitous, you know, like it's it was just again connecting with people and talking to people and just talking about us because that's all we know how to do. So Brenda, now you are at Purdue, as you've mentioned, in Indiana, which has quite a different relationship with bilingual culture. And how did you end up there? And do you feel uh it's sort of a, a new part of your mission to expand into some more unknown territory. Yeah, so that was interesting. So like I said, I was I was living, well, I'm still living a, living a double life. So <laughs> I was still working on my program. I was doing my PhD and I was taking it easy. As, as it is, this was like right during the pandemic, right after the pandemic. So, you know, for the restaurant, it was a very chaotic time. You know, I, you know, everybody got to, got to learn new skills at home. My brother and I, we worked every single day, you know, it's like, we didn't have a day to rest, you know, cause that was it, you know, like we, we wanted to make sure that everybody was safe. So we would pick up, you know, shifts. So I was taking, I was like, ah, when I'll finish my PhD, when I'll, I will finish, I'll finish when I finish. And my department they they distributed the call for this position and i'm not gonna lie like i i opened it and i read it and i think it was the first time in my entire life where i read a document and i said this is me Hmm. like every single thing that they were looking for including the spanish speaking part which wow blew my mind um, you know, like it really, it really just needed my name on the top, but I felt like it was a long shot, you know, to be honest. Um, you know, I think we, 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 we suffer in academia, this whole, you know, imposter syndrome. And we also as immigrants have like a double imposter syndrome, you know, and as women You're feeling it know, from all sides, right? From all sides, you know? So I was like, well, you know. Um, and also, you know, like really not knowing how to navigate that, you know, this is a, this was an area that I've never, ever navigating, navigated. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have amazing mentors uh, in, in, in my program, in my university. And so I was like, I, I don't even, you know, like, how, how does it work? So submitted my application. And then I was like, well, you know, in Spanish, we have a, we have a saying, it's like, a ver si chicle pega, you know, let's see if the gum sticks. Um, and I got cold. Uh, we did an interview uh, via Zoom and I fell in love with my team. Well, now is my team. At that time, I didn't know that. <laughs> there was such a connection 
with them that you just felt it was like a fit. So I wasn't, I got invited to come and that's where it blew my mind because I didn't expect so many Spanish speaking people in Indiana. Uh, from the moment I got to the airport, I heard Spanish everywhere. I remember texting my parents that day and I'm like, I think I heard more Spanish in the airport here than in San Antonio this morning. <laughs> and they're like, no. <laughs> um, so then, you know, like uh, I, I took the shuttle to, uh, to here to Lafayette, but this is in January. Everything is dead. And I remember looking out the window and I'm like, where am I going? You know, I was like, what is happening? It's cold. Cold, dark, gray landscape. Dark, just, you know, I'm like, oh my God. And then I got to Lafayette. And then really throughout the time that I was here, everywhere I went, even the, the, the grocery store, I kept hearing Spanish everywhere. So then later I was explained that there is this huge influx of immigrants coming in into coming into Indiana uh, because of construction, because of agriculture, and because of certain factories that operate here in the state. So even even when it comes to agriculture and construction, maybe that you know the families come and settle here, and then they they go and work. The parents go and work somewhere else, but the kids they go to schools here. Yep. So there's been this jump in again diversity in the demographics of the student population. And it started happening very quickly. And with that, you know, the need to really offer professional development and the tools for teachers to be able to work with this population. Yeah. And that's kind of where I talk a lot about activism, about using, you know, their positions as teachers, um, as English speaking teachers, you know, uh, that privilege that they have to use it to, to really elevate their students, you know, and that's kind of like my mission, you know, how can we elevate each other, you know, um, if, if it's through tacos, or if it's, you know, in the classroom, it, it, that's, you know, like, that's, that's what we should be doing. What a beautiful bow that you just put on your story there. I love that as a takeaway of your mission is, is to elevate each other and frame it in a way where those are our assets and skills that we can all share with each other. Thank you so much for your time today, Brenda. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was great talking to you. You can find Brenda on Instagram at Dr. Brenda SQ. That's Dr. A. Brenda SQ. If you ever go to Texas and they happen to be in San Antonio, check out El Pastor Es Mi Señor. Her parents or her brother Alex might be the ones behind the counter. Netflix features the restaurant in its Taco Chronicles series, Season 3, Episode 3, San Antonio. Yellowfish Sushi is also an option if you're local. From afar, you can find the restaurants on Instagram as well. The Prof PodQuest is produced by Six City Marketing, an SEO and digital marketing agency headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio. Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you won't miss our next conversation. Also, if you like the show, leave a review to help others find us too. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Bloxage, Steve DiMatteo, John Salmon, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by John Oyster. Our theme music is Clinical Trial by Eric Vargas. Cover art design by Laura Perrin. To learn more, visit SixCityMarketing.com.